off last week at verse 9 of chapter 1, and you'll be using the same handout that we passed out last week. If you don't have a copy, that's fine. There are extras back there on the chair. For the record, I want to recommend Francis Schaeffer's book, Death in the City, to you. This is not a commentary on Lamentations, but it is a reflection on Lamentations and the life of Jeremiah. And although it's almost 50 years old now, uh, it's it's interestingly prescient about current cultural conditions in America and in the West. It's still in print. You can find it on Amazon and other online book suppliers. It's not expensive. Uh, So if you're interested in an easy read, something that brings Lamentations, so to speak, up to date in terms of contemporary events, uh, I would recommend uh, Schaefer's Death in the City to you. It's very well done. Now we're following the acrostic of the chapter characteristic of the book of Lamentations is the acrostic feature. You see that on the left-hand side of your sheet with the letters of the Hebrew alphabet in alphabetical order. There are 22 letters. There are 22 verses. In addition, this chapter has a chiastic framework. That is, it has a what we call reciprocal or mirror relationship, and you can see that from the lines of the English and Hebrew forms that are corresponding, for instance, line A and A prime, that's verse 1 and 22, B and B prime 2 and 21, etc. Coming down to the center of the chiasm and where the crisscross occurs in verses 11 and 12, and we'll go into detail on that uh, reverse chiastic pattern uh, when we get there. So, uh, resuming this evening at verse 9. This verse provides the final element in the characterization of Lady Jerusalem and the completion of the daughter of Zion's personification. We have acknowledged that there is a personal voice in the poetry. In fact, there are two personal voices in the poetry. There is the voice of the poet narrator, namely Jeremiah himself, He is describing the situation in Jerusalem after the destruction by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. And for the first time, we are encountering the voice of Jerusalem personified, though she has been speaking since verse 1 of chapter 1. This is another narrative first. We hear the voice of the personified city. She speaks in verse 9 with urgent plangency, demanding with imperative force that the Lord gaze upon her affliction. The direct mandate to God takes us aback, as if he is obligated by her demand to look down upon the misery which she has brought upon herself on account of her egregious sins. Notice that as she sits in the uncleanness of her illicit sexual activity, as she exhibits herself as a fallen woman, 
she continues in her denial and demands that the Lord see the enemy. She does not say, O Lord, look at my astonishing sins, my promiscuous harlotries. Rather, she embarks upon a pity party and shifts the blame and the eye of God from herself and her iniquity to the enemy Babylonians who have brought affliction of body and soul upon her. It is imperative, O Lord, that you look down on these pagan adversaries, these foreign bad guys. See how they have hurt me. See how they have caused me pain. Me, me, the daughter of Zion. Me, Lady Jerusalem. See me. This lady lives in denial. She lives in denial of her responsibility for the affliction of her adversaries. She had frequented her lovers continually in denial of a sure and certain day of reckoning. Notice what the verse says. She did not consider her future. Rather, she thought judgment day would never come. She lived wantonly and promiscuously, refusing the commandments of the Lord at the cost of her sins, and now has the effrontery to demand that the Lord look at her enemies and not at her. The blame game. The blame game is well narrated in this first speech of daughter Jerusalem. But the Lord does not answer her demand. Who has demanded of God that he should be obligated to him or her in return? A paraphrase of Romans 11.35. Who has demanded of God that God is obligated to answer in return? Add to God's own silence at her demand, re-echoing litany of this chapter. She has no comforter. She has no one to help her, verse 7. She has none to comfort her, verse 2. The litany returns, verse 9. None. She has no Comforter, no one, nada, not even the Lord God. She has abandoned herself to sin, and sin has repaid her with abandonment. She has sold herself to her lovers. And her lovers have repaid her with the label used, abused, and discarded. Lady Zion speaks out of her misery, but her speech is self-centered, not God-centered. Her cries of suffering arise from self-pity. 
not divine pity. She cries into the night, and the night makes no reply. She cries out for a comforter, and no comforter answers her. She cries to the Lord, and the Lord is silent. The deafening silence of no word of mercy. See, O Lord, she demands. He does not answer. Indeed, there comes a day when God does not answer sinners who have hardened themselves against his grace. Verse 10, having heard the voice of daughter Zion in verse 9, we now in this verse return to the voice of our poetic narrator, Jeremiah. It is his descriptive voice which has dominated verses 1 to 9. He has detailed the history of Jerusalem's fall in those nine verses, describing them, demonstrating the agony and suffering of that fallen city. We realize now that there are two voices to our poetic drama. There are two voices to the book of Lamentation. There is the inspired narrator, whom I take to be Jeremiah himself, and there is the voice of the ravaged city, whom I have labeled Lady Jerusalem. Each of the voices has its own characterization, its own personification, its own narrative story. Jeremiah stands on the other side of his prophecies, on the other stand of the other side of the prophecies which are contained in the book of Jeremiah, now providing, now revealing in Lamentations the record of the fulfillment of what the word of the Lord through him had promised, what the word of the Lord through him had predicted, what the word of the Lord through him had infallibly prophesied. Lamentations of Jeremiah become a narrative commentary on the prophecy of Jeremiah. The lamentations of Jeremiah become, as it were, a narrative commentary in poetic form on the prophecy of the book of Jeremiah. That is what you are reading. You are reading an epexegetical elaboration upon the conclusion of the prophetic deliberation of the mouth of the prophet of the Lord. As for Jerusalem herself, we are just, since verse 9, meeting her personally. Her story from her own lips remains to be heard, and we will hear more of it in verses 11 to 22. In the scope, then, of this first acrostic chapter, 
this first chapter from A to Z, so to speak, this first chapter that covers all the voices, it covers all, all of the issues, it covers all of the voices. We have all of the major speakers in this drama, in this first chapter, and we meet them as we go. Now, you will notice that verse 10 repeats a phrase. It's a phrase in the English translation. It's only one word in the original Hebrew. Verse 10 repeats a phrase which the narrator has used in verse 7. And he will use for the last time in verse 11. Precious things. Notice the phrase, precious things. Now, this phrase... Actually, Hebrew word translated in two words in English. This phrase seems to be a conundrum to many of the commentators. Many of those commentators find sexual imagery here. And they cite the context of uncleanness and nakedness in verse 8. While there is some plausibility to that interpretation, this verse... Verse 10 clearly has no such implication. Notice the parallel phrases which follow the line about Jerusalem's precious things. One of the things we've learned about Hebrew poetry in these Thursday evening studies is that there is a symmetry between words in a line or lines and successive lines. So one of the ways we get elaboration upon difficult parts of Hebrew poetry is to look at the parallel lines, which will sometimes help us figure out the nuance. That is true in this case. The parallel phrases, which follow Jerusalem's precious things, and you also notice subsequent parallels in this verse, the parallel between enter or go in, in 10C and 10E, and the parallel between sanctuary and congregation or sacred assembly in 10C and 10E. Those parallel phrases are describing the precious things of the temple. Sanctuary or congregation is describing the precious things of the temple. Go in or enter. Go in or enter where? The temple. The Gentiles have gone in, goyim in Hebrew, the goyim have gone in, they have invaded the sanctuary of the Lord. They have entered, they have plundered its precious treasures. They have desecrated its sacred space with their own uncleanness. Not only is Lady Jerusalem defiled, her most holy inner sanctum has been violated. In the space Set aside for the holy assembly of the congregation of God, the adversary has entered and put forth his hand to rob and plunder and steal and loot and destroy. The precious things here in verse 10, which are seized by the hand of the pagan Babylonians, are the precious objects of gold, silver, brass, Yea, the jewels of the temple treasury. In confirmation of this interpretation that the precious things here are referring to the precious treasures 
of the temple precincts. We turn to Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 19, where we read, The Chaldeans burned the house of God and destroyed all its precious things or valuable objects, as the New American Standard reads there, with the same Hebrew word used here in Lamentations 1.10 for precious things. First Chronicles 36, verse 19, confirms the interpretation we are placing upon this alleged conundrum, conundrum to the, shall we say, biased commentators. Second Chronicles 36.19 solves the nuance of this challenging Hebrew word. You may also want to look ahead to Lamentations 2.7 for the hand of the enemy extended against the sanctuary of the temple. There's no question that the hand there refers to the hand of the Babylonians against the temple precincts. It is likely then that the hand here is referring to the same thing. Thus, precious things are valuable objects, sometimes more general treasures, as in verse 11 and perhaps in verse 7. But here in verse 10, these precious things are very specific valuables. They are the specific valuables from the temple riches. And they have been plundered. Now, verse 10 also contains yet another first. We're noticing as we move through this, through the lines of this initial first chapter, a number of first occurrences of, he, of terms, of Hebrew words, of names for God, of names for Jerusalem, names for Judah, etc. Verse 10 has another first. It is the first verse in the book of Lamentations to mention the sanctuary of the Kahal Yahweh. The Kahal Yahweh, meaning in Hebrew, the assembly of the Lord, the congregation of God. That the temple of Solomon, which had stood for nearly 400 years in 586 B.C., was a particular object of Babylonian pillaging is recorded in the historical record of the invasion, looting, and destruction of Jerusalem in that fateful year, 586 B.C., 2 Kings 25, verses 13 to 17, 2 Chronicles 36, verses 10, 18, and 19, Jeremiah 52, verses 17 to 23, are the historical recordings of how the Babylonians destroyed the temple of the Lord. The location of the sacred, reverent, and hushed worship of the Lord is now the site of a rampaging enemy and his soldier hordes. The sacred precincts with ark and altar and golden lampstand have been looted and deported to Babylon. The nations, Goim, the nations have entered the Holy of Holies, not in awe and wonder, not to join the assembly of the covenant people. They have not entered in so as to be grafted on to the branch of Judah. No, 
they have entered in to cut off the branch of Judah, to decimate the Holy of Holies, to display their awesome power with sword, spear, clanging armor, and the hands of greed, rapine, robbery, violence against the people of God and the sanctuary of the Lord. So do they wantonly desecrate Kahal Yahweh. Well might the tears of Lady Zion flow. Her temple lies in ruins. Her temple treasures, precious things, have been rustled and carried off. Her temple precincts and furnishings have been raised, burned, scattered. You may cry, Ichabod, once more. You may cry, Ichabod, once more. The glory has departed. Templum delendum. Templum delendum. Having reached now the first break in Jeremiah's poetic narrative of this destruction of Jerusalem, we pause after verse 10 to reflect on the piteously poignant suffering of the city of Zion. Verses 1 to 10 have revealed that plangent suffering through the narrative voice of the poet Jeremiah. While hiding the existential or experiential voice of that same poet, Jeremiah. Jeremiah records for us the facts and dimensions of the suffering in the city. But his voice in these initial stanzas provides no clue as to his own self-identification with that suffering. Jeremiah appears initially as a dispassionate eyewitness who rehearses the facts, and only the facts, and nothing but the facts of the events of the suffering, the suffering land, the suffering population, the suffering city. While the narrator incorporates personification as a poetic literary device, he does so with an economy of imagery, an economy of vocabulary. And he allows only one direct remark, one direct discourse remark to escape the lips of the plaintive voice of that city while holding back a full-orbed existential or experiential explosion of personal comment. We are at the point of transition at verse 10 of chapter 1. We are at the point of narrative transition at verse 10 of chapter 1 in which all this will change. A transitional change to the fuller expression of suffering 
through the two voices of one poetic drama. The two voices, the duo voices of the single poetic drama. The voice of the poet and coming the voice of the city. That transition is signaled by the turning point in the macrochiasm of chapter 1, <clears throat> as you see it <coughs> on your handout. A turning point clearly demarcated by a mini-chiastic reversal in verse 11 and verse 12. <coughs> I will elaborate upon that point <coughs> subsequently in these studies. But for the present, we focus on the theology of suffering, the theology of suffering which we have read about, which we have had described in the first ten verses of this first chapter. And in reflecting upon that anguished suffering, we present the following summary of that threnody. From the outset of verse 1, we are aware of the loneliness of the desolate, decimated city. She sits without any other. She sits without any other helper. She sits alone without any other comforter. She sits abandoned, quite solitary in her condition and in her circumstances. She sits in dereliction, including desertion, rejection, renunciation, and defection. We are reminded of the solitary, the alone feature of suffering. We are reminded of the solitary feature of suffering. The singular sense of desolation, which is too often accompanied by no one. No one but the sufferer. No helper. No comforter. No sympathizer. As the world moves on, as the world moves on with itself, its agenda, its self-absorption, its indifferent self-ishness. Then, too, these initial verses of Lamentations have revealed the hurt, the pain, the wounds, deep wounds, the blood, the death. These verses have revealed the violence of suffering with pierces, pierces of the flesh, crushes of the soul. The pain of suffering which hangs like a weight 
an often immovable weight of agony, daily searing pain, which in spite of its hurtfulness leaves the mind numb. Pain which leaves the mind numb with surreal aimlessness. Death alone, the solitary escape. And what can be said of the scorn and mockery attendant upon the suffering of this 6th century B.C. city? The seemingly endless taunts from siege towers, marching battalions of soldiers who hurl curses against the walls of the city of God. Insult upon insult, even as they finally stand over the lamentable victim, boasting in their power, their superior force, their arrogant tyranny, their despicable violation of honor and transparency. Their mockery and scorn is but a revelation of their vaunted godlike power to demean and to dehumanize and to depersonalize while regarding their victims as things. Despicable things, disturbing, deserving of insult and taunt and scorn and mockery, and contempt. What depths of suffering are found revealed in all that? And all that is here in Lamentations 1, 1 to 10. This land... This city, this people have been shamed, exposed to the ravages and horrors of being stripped of human dignity, bared to the humiliation of brute helplessness, overpowered in multiple ways with that which denudes the person, denudes the soul, opens the whole to indecency and embarrassment. Well might they wail and shriek in shame. Well might they wail and shriek in degradation. No covering. Open exposure. Stripped bare for the pleasure of the evil powers tyrannizing over them. We sum up a theology of suffering which encompasses loneliness and dereliction, violence and bloody death, scorn and insults, humiliation and naked shame. It is a pattern of suffering into which Judah and Jerusalem are pressed down. Participate in identify with. They are alone and derelict. 
They are subject to violence, even bloody death. They are scorned and insulted. They are humiliated and made naked to their shame. But they deserve their suffering. Their sins have earned them this repayment for their shameful, insulting, naked, and even bloody dereliction from the character of God and the life of heaven's kingdom. Their land of Judah has the stench of hell about it. Their city of Jerusalem is aflame with their lusts. Their people are naked defiers of the will of God. Suffering is what they deserve. God has given them what they earned. But there comes a sufferer from afar who does not deserve it. He is a father's son from a far country who has no sin and is the perfect image and nature of the sinless character of God and his Jerusalem. This son of the father will be left alone in his undeserved suffering. He will experience dereliction which only sinners deserve, not he. He will experience the subject of violence, violence in bloody death, though he be perfectly innocent. He will endure taunts and scorn and insults and will never say a mumbling word. He will be humiliated in naked exposure with nothing to cover the shame he bears. There will come a sufferer from afar who does not deserve to suffer, but he will. But he will. And he will suffer the sinless for the sinner so that once and for all suffering may be no more for those who look upon his face, for those who look upon his face forever and ever and ever. Lamentations drives you to Christ. If you do not see it, you are worse than blind. Worse than blind. Or would you treat this book as giving you a little practical, applicatory ditties for your everyday life? What nonsense! Utter rubbish to reduce this marvelous poetry of suffering and the glory of Christ to your agenda of coping with your daily life's problems. 
Now, verse 11. Verse 11 makes the transition in chapter 1, which we have observed, and you are seeing it if you're looking at your outline and also at the words in the verse. This transition is clear from the chiastic pattern of the Hebrew text. It is on your outline exactly as it appears in the order in which it is written in the Hebrew text. The two verbs, see and look, are mirrored in the same two verbs in verse 12, and they are mirrored chiastically. That is, see and look is chiastically look and see. Verse 11, a mirror of verse 12, and vice versa. The crisscross. Interestingly, at the center of the chapter, the crisscross, the chiastic crisscross, is a symmetrical signal of a reverse transition in the poetic characterization. Verses 1 to 10 have characterized the suffering city through the voice of the poet, Jeremiah's analytical description. The major voice of those ten verses is the narrative descriptive voice of the poet himself. Only once, only once is that pattern interrupted with a declaration in the voice of the city of Jerusalem in verse 9. Now with verse 11. We meet the first I pronoun personification. In verse 11, we meet the first I pronoun personification and, and it is the I of the personified city Jerusalem who speaks. Jerusalem is the I who speaks. Archaism here marks a shift, a shift in characterization, a shift in spokesperson. The suffering city will now speak out of her own personal misery in the first person. From verses 11 to 22, we listen to the personal autobiography of suffering Zion. The personal autobiography of Lady Jerusalem in her agony. Her personal story will be described in these verses in her own words. From verse 11 on, we encounter an explosion of I, me, my pronouns. The only interruption is in verse 17, where the her pronouns indicate a change in voice momentarily, and the narrator of verses 1 to 10 returns briefly in verse 17. He returns briefly to interrupt his own narrative comment, to interpret his own narrative description in the midst of the outpouring of the tongue of the city herself. The duplicate pattern of a major voice interrupted by a minor voice mirrors the two sections of this chapter. Verses 1 to 10 matching verses 13 to 22. Major voice of the poet mirrored by minor voice of the city. 
minor voice of the city, verse 9, mirrored by minor voice of the poet, verse 17, with the whole transitioned by a perfect chiasm at verses 11 and 12. This is genius. This is magnificent genius. Perfect symmetry, crisscrossing in a perfect chiasm. Perfect balance, crisscrossing in a perfect mirror reflection. And in fact, every verse, a chiastic mirror of its obverse in the broader context. Could you even think to do this, let alone accomplish it, if you tried? Could you conceive such a complex and yet beautifully balanced and symmetrical poetic device for the purpose of telling the story in two voices of the Judgment Day 586 B.C.? You are in the presence of genius in the words of this chapter and in the words of this whole book. You are in the presence of a genius craftsman, of an artist, of a poetic artist, who is beyond the artistry of many, including Shakespeare. Divine inspiration notwithstanding. Do you have any idea of whose company you are in as you read these magnificent lines, even in your English Bible? Or have you become so used to your chapter of the day at the dinner table that you don't pay any attention to the drama of the lines you're reading? What is the Word of God to you? Is it your life because it draws you to the life of Christ? What is the word of God to you? What is the study of the Bible to you? Is it rote and cant? Is it routine and automatic? Or are you drawn by the invitation of the text And the glorious God of the text who is far richer than you could ever imagine. Are you drawn by that down into the very depth of his life? By the words of the text in front of your face. Every word of which text draws you to the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you come? to the Word of God in 2015. Time for our break. And we'll resume with verse 11 at the end of your refreshment. Now, if you return to the macrochiasm of this entire chapter, namely the handout sheet, You will note the mirror reflection or mirror symmetry in the paired opposite verses of the chiasm. Now, by that, I mean verse 1 is paired with verse 22, A, A prime. 
Verse 2 is paired with verse 21, B, B prime. Verse 3 is paired with verse 20, C, C prime, and so on, as you go to K and K prime at the center. What the narrator poet Jeremiah details in verses 1 to 10 is mirrored in the voice of personified Jerusalem in verses 13 to 22. Even the vocabulary is a mirror reflection. In instances, it is exactly the same word in Hebrew. The crossover in the chiasm occurs at verses 11 and 12, the center of the chiastic paradigm. As we move forward from the chiasm here in 11 and 12, we will hear the echo of the vocabulary of the narrator poet Jeremiah in the voice of the personified city, Jerusalem. The chiasm then confirms my declaration that we have two narrative voices in this book. We have the narrative voice of the poet, and we have the narrative or personified voice of the city of Jerusalem. We will see how they interface as we move through the other chapters of the book, but for our purposes now, we realize that we're dealing with two voices, two personalities, two centers of description. Verse 11 presents one of the horrors of the siege of Jerusalem, namely starvation. The historical record of this desperate hunger is labeled a famine of no food for the people, 2 Kings 25.3. All the bread in the city was gone, Jeremiah 37.21. There was no more bread in the city, Jeremiah 38, verse 9. The groans of those seeking bread is listed here in verse 11. Those groans made in a plaintive and pathetic motif found in every chapter of the book of Lamentations. In chapter 2, verse 11, the little ones and the infants are famished in the street. In chapter 3, verse 4, the flesh and skin have wasted away due to starvation. In chapter 4, verse 10, cannibalism. The women are eating their children. And in chapter 5, verse 6, They are trying to obtain food on the black market from Assyria or from Egypt. Hunger, starvation, famine, all these bring a litany of horror and pathos. They are emphasized, underscored, and repeated in every chapter of this book. The acknowledgement here that daughter Jerusalem is despised, means she is considered worthless. Ironically, all the more necessary to pawn her precious things to secure basic necessities. The Babylonian enemy certainly did consider her worthless. That is, not worth tolerating any longer for her serial treacheries and betrayals of Chaldean suzerainty. 597 B.C. was rebellion enough, but 587 B.C. was the last straw for Nebuchadnezzar. Whatever this city of Zion was worth, 
it was better as a pile of rubble with a creme de la creme bound and chained and marched off to exile. I am done with this bunch of rebellious Jews. Worthless Lady Jerusalem has made herself so worth nothing in the eyes of the world. Suffering does that. Suffering reduces the sufferer to a feeling of worthlessness. The relentless grinding that suffering brings and the sense that one is fit only for suffering and worth nothing else but suffering. Verse 12. This verse provides two additional firsts in our poem. For the first time, passers-by are mentioned. Sixth century B.C. looky-loos, gawking at Lady Jerusalem in astonishment and hidden glee. Nothing makes persons happier than to see others suffer as they do. Or that is how the pagan and unbelieving world treats tragedy. It's the serves them right reaction. Also, for the first time, our poem records the day of the Lord's fierce anger. The day of the Lord's fierce anger. We know much about this day of the Lord, Yom Yahweh in Hebrew. We know much about this Yom Yahweh from our study of the prophet Zephaniah, a contemporary of Jeremiah, and like predictor of the destruction of Jerusalem. Those lectures are available on the nwts.edu website, and you can listen to them there. But we note the poetic prophetic ironies here. The day of the Lord was to be a future apocalypse in the view of the Old Testament Jewish citizens of Judah and Jerusalem. That future has become present in 586 B.C. And that Old Testament Jewish citizen of Judah and Jerusalem was confident that the Yom Yahweh, the day of the Lord, would bring the destruction of all of Judah's enemies. They would be burned up and incinerated by the fire of God. In 586 B.C., Israel's enemies burned her up. Brought apocalypse now to Jerusalem. The reverse ironies of the advent of the day of the Lord causes more weeping and wailing. Seeking sympathy from onlookers, Lady Jerusalem receives none. 
seeking the Lord's apocalyptic judgment on the evil Babylonians, Lady Jerusalem finds she is the victim of the apocalyptic judgment, not the pagan Babylonians. Is there any sorrow like her sorrow? Is it nothing to those who pass by? Is it nothing to them? Jerusalem in the 6th century B.C. becomes the staging area for a personified voice who pleads, Is it nothing to you who see this judgment, this death, this pathos? Jerusalem in the 6th century B.C. becomes the staging area for a personified voice who who exclaims, Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow. Will this staging area, will this Jerusalem on Mount Zion be the location of another personified figure, a figure swallowed up on the day of the Lord with his fierce anger? Is that figure nothing to you? He who bears the apocalypse now himself in his flesh, in his spirit, is that suffering, hanging, crucified figure, nothing to all you who pass by. Was there any sorrow like unto his sorrow? Any. He who cried out of his suffering. He who screamed out of his suffering. My God, my God, why? You do see, don't you? You do see. These are eschatological questions which capture an eschatological person who has endured eschatological wrath and eschatological sorrow. Surely, surely, the rhetorical question and the rhetorical declaration are answered once and for all by the Son of God. There has never been sorrow like his. There has never been affliction like his. Never, ever, nor will be ever more. Can you fathom the suffering of an eternal person enduring an eternal wrath? Can you even begin to conceive it? And yet he did it. He did it. Is it nothing to you? Oh, I don't think about those things, Mr. Dennison. Those things are really too high and mighty for me. I don't even bother to think about that. You're way over my head, Mr. Dennison. I don't want to think about that. 
I want to keep my little puny pea brain in the nice comfortable spot that it is, sitting in its comfortable pew week after week, thinking about nothing, really. The eternal Son of God takes your puny wrath, as you may imagine it, takes it and eternally bears it away so that you may have the eternity he abandoned to take the eternity of hell in an instant so that you wouldn't have to take it eternally. Is it nothing to you? Verse 13. We notice the verb spread or stretched out here, which duplicates that same verb in verse 10, where it forms part of the mirror chiastic structure we have pointed out in our macrochiasm outline of chapter 1. Here, letters J and J prime are symmetrical mirrors. Now, in verse 10, it is the hand of the enemy which is stretched out against Jerusalem. Here, in verse 13, it is the Lord who stretches or spreads out his net to snare Jerusalem. The reciprocal relation is one of means to an end. Means to an end. God's purpose is to destroy Jerusalem. He uses the enemy Babylonians as the means to his end. The fire in my bones image. The fire in my bones image flows from the Yom Yahweh or day of God's anger in verse 12. As the fire imagery of the day of the Lord in Zephaniah 1.18 and Zephaniah 3.8 makes clear. But it also echoes the language of the prophet poet Jeremiah elsewhere. In Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9, in the midst of one of the prophet's famous complaints, he declares that the word of God is like a burning fire shut up in my bones. The word of God, like a burning fire shut up in the prophet's bones. The use of duplicate imagery and expression is another small confirmation of the Jeremianic authorship of Lamentations taken here in Lamentations 1.13 as the personified voice of the city Jerusalem duplicating the personal voice of the prophet-poet Jeremiah, or we may say echoing his prophetic voice in chapter 20, verse 9, of his prophetic corpus. Fire into my bones. It may designate 
not just the passion of the Word of God, as it certainly does in Jeremiah 20, verse 9, but here, in the face of the devastation of Jerusalem, it may designate a feverish state, consistent with faint or sick, as your margin may read at the end of the verse. Certainly, burning up with fever may leave the bones achingly painful. All of us have felt that during the flu season. The sickening fever may also be related to the famine and starvation, which are abroad in this desolate city in 586 B.C. Tragically, those who seek to escape the fever pits are snarled in nets and turned back to the inescapable horror of death and destruction in those pits. It is the suffering of the impossibility, the utter weakness and impotence, the suffering of being trapped. It is the suffering of being snared. It is the suffering of no place to go but to suffer even more. It is suffering which burns one up with fever from which there is no aspirin. Verse 14 contains the first, here's another first. Remember, this poem is full of firsts. Verse 14 contains the first use of the name Adonai for God. That name is a complement to the name Yahweh found in the chiastically reciprocal verse 9, I and I prime on your macrochiasm outline. Adonai, Lord Adonai. It is a word for God, a name for God that expresses God's authority, his lordship or mastery over his people. As I noted, it is a complement to Yahweh. Yahweh, which is the covenant name of God. His promise to be the God of his people in personal relationship with them. I will be your God, you shall be my people. Reciprocal, mirror, personal relationship. The prominence of Adonai's authority in this verse 14 is expressed in his handing Judah over to the Babylonians whom they were unable to withstand. Having defied and rebelled against Adonai's lordship and moral authority, God gave his covenant people over to their defiance and rebellion. He gave them what they deserved by his own righteous, authoritative hand of perfect justice. 
You will note that that hand of God bound Judah to the yoke of their transgressions. Judah and Jerusalem reveal that they had saddled themselves with the yoke, the burdensome yoke of their profligate sins. They had heaped upon their necks the weight of sexual immorality, treachery, injustice, personal pleasure, idolatry, desecration of worship, a host of sins yoking them to certain judgment which God's hand meted out by crushing their strength with the yoke of their iniquities. Now this use of the yoke image here, the yoke as an image of Judah's sinful rebellion, should remind us of the narrative of Jeremiah chapter 27 and 28. In those two chapters, Jeremiah the prophet is commanded by God to make a yoke and to wear it around his neck as a prophetic sign of the approaching judgment of God against Judah and Jerusalem. A yoke around Jeremiah the prophet's neck presaging the bondage which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, will bring upon the necks of the people of Judah and Jerusalem. Lamentations 1.14 is the fulfillment of that image and the prophetic sign which Jeremiah paraded before the citizens of Judah and Jerusalem. The suffering and affliction of verse 9 comes from the Babylonian enemy. The impotence and bondage of verse 14 comes from the Babylonian enemy. And it is the hand of Yahweh Adonai which lies behind both. It is his hand which pays out the wages of sin in perfect wrath and justice. Verse 15, tracing the macrochiastic reciprocal in verse 15 with its counterpart in verse 8. You will note on your macrochiasm outline H and H prime. We discover as we look at these two verses a wholesale rejection motif. In verse 8, all who formerly honored Judah and Lady Jerusalem now despise and reject her. In verse 15, all the strong adult men within Judah and Jerusalem are rejected by the Lord Adonai. Not only are all the strong men rejected by God, they, along with the young men, are appointed to a harvest festival of grape crushing. A harvest festival of grape Crushing, a crushing of grapes in which the blood of the fruit of the vine will image the blood of old men and young men alike flowing beneath the Babylonian sword, siege machines, and impaling stakes. Oh yes, the Babylonians, like the Assyrians before them, loved to impale 
They're living victims outside the gates of the cities they conquered. The Assyrians liked to flay them alive. You know what flaying is, don't you? It's cutting the skin off of an of a of an organ organic person of an animal or a person cutting the skin off. But the Assyrians did it while their victims were still alive. In the image of a time appointed for a harvest here in verse 15, the image of a time appointed for a gathering for crushing via destruction recalls the haunting invitation of the prophet Zephaniah in chapter 1, verse 7 of his prophetic work where God prepares a sacrifice. God prepares a sacrifice in Judah and Jerusalem and he summons the inhabitants to that sacrifice. He summons the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem to the sacrifice, not to offer anything, but to be the offering themselves. Here, Adonai invites Judah and Jerusalem to a harvest festival of the wine press. Only what will be pressed in the wine vats will not be the grapes of the vintage, but the young and old of the virgin daughter of Judah. The further irony here is that the appointed feasts of verse 4, which no one attends, have been replaced by this appointed feast, as the NASB margin reads. Not a festival of celebration, but a festival of slaughter. A festival of crushing and treading down Adonai's, twice over Adonai here, treading down Adonai's fierce anger. This ironic imagery is telling as it appropriates all of that which has been abandoned by Judah and Jerusalem for their promiscuous harlotries of idolatry and immorality. One final footnote. The imagery of God treading the wine press of his wrath, which is also found here in this 15th verse, echoes Joel chapter 3, verse 13. But in that famous chapter, that wine press of God's wrath is imaged in the ominous valley of decision. The ominous valley of decision. We come to verse 16 and the city weeps. Her eyes, note the NASB margin, my eye, my eye, double, namely both her eyes, literally the Hebrew says my eye, my eye, both her eyes run down with tears. What the poet narrator had described in verse 2 
the city weeps in the night with tears on her cheeks, is duplicated here in verse 16 from the mouth of the personified city herself. Existential confirmation. Existential confirmation firsthand from eyewitness empirical demonstration. The voice of Jeremiah and the voice of Jerusalem agree. They also agree on the absence of a comforter, as verse 16 reinforces by duplication, verse 2, while echoing verse 9. No comforter. The city is isolated. Isolated from the good old days, the good old days of old, verse 7. And it has come to pass that she is afflicted homeless and mocked by her adversaries. Also, verse 7. But here in verse 16, the city acknowledges that a comforter is far from her. And it has come to pass that she is desolated because of the enemy. The symmetry in what she has been separated from and the coming to pass of the incursions of the enemy adversaries mirrors verse 7 in verse 16, and vice versa, microchiasm G and G prime on your outline. I trust you are getting the point. This elaborate outline that I have given you is a matched symmetrical mirror. G and G prime, H and H prime. I and I prime, etc. This is a matched mirror paradigm, intentionally written so that you might see it, so that the Hebrew listener would hear it, so that the Hebrew reader would observe it. It is there to reinforce the dual voices of the dramatic narrative. Now here in verse 16, the suffering city is more poignantly plangent because she blurts out from the lips of her own tear-streaked face that she has no comforter. None. None. To come alongside her for comfort. Where then shall comfort be found? In the Jerusalem that then was? Or in the Jerusalem that is to come? Where shall comfort be found? In the Jerusalem below? Or in the Jerusalem above? And where shall the comforter be found? One to wipe away all tears from her eyes. Shall she find such a one in this present evil age? Or should she look for another in the age to come? These are eschatological questions. They can only be resolved through eschatological answers. An eschatological comfort, comforter, who bears the eschatological suffering, 
but dwells in an eschatological Jerusalem where his once upon a time suffering people look upon his glorious resurrected face. For all eternity, world without end, time without time. Surely such a prospect as that is worth pondering. Not just running in one ear and out another. Surely such a prospect is worth pondering. Pondering what eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, nor hath entered into the heart of man what the Lord God has prepared for those who suffered with his suffering son for the sake of eternal glory. Ponder it. Sit alone in your comfortable chair and ponder it. Let it flood your soul. Let it still your turmoil. Let it draw you into heaven itself and lay you down at the feet of the eschatological sufferer. Let's pray. Father, the poignancy of these lines moves our emotions, stirs our hearts with sympathy, alarms us. We're all too aware of our own sins, failures, and inadequacies, but drives us to the one who comes even in the spirit of Jeremiah. Some in his day thought that he was Jeremiah raised from the dead. Drives us to the one who also wept. Wept over Lady Jerusalem. One whom they passed by. One who was nothing to them, who passed by as he hung upon a bloody gibbet. Not so with us, O Lord. He is precious in our sight. He has taken what we deserve and borne it in our place. He has gone through the suffering and pain of hellish damnation itself, as it were, and sits glorified 
at your right hand, inviting us to come unto him, to lay our suffering down upon his broken and bloody body, and to be raised up with a newness of life and the promise of a body that will never suffer again. Indeed, they may destroy the body, but they cannot destroy the soul. And on that last day, even the body will be raised up. Now bless us with the comfort of these truths, even in the midst of the dirge of this city, but a dirge which is recorded for our instruction and also recorded for our encouragement because it draws us to Jesus and we sing no dirges for him. We sing hallelujah in Jesus' name. Amen.